Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. When you're there, say amen. All right, so it's our custom. We stand for the reading of God's word, um, but we also want to read together corporately. So if you could stand to your feet, and if you don't have a Bible, you can read with us on the screen. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. Ready, read. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this awesome, amazing, gracious opportunity, God, to come before you to study your word. Uh, My prayer this morning, God, above everything else, is that Christ, God, would be glorified this morning. Lord, I pray that as um, the message goes forth, God, I pray that our hearts, minds, ears are open, God, to receive what you have to say to us this morning. God, let the words that come out this morning be transformative, God. As we study your text, open up our minds, God. Help us to be more like you this morning, God. I pray this morning, Father, that whatever distractions we may have, God, whatever is competing for the attention of our heart this morning, God, I pray that by your spirit and by your power this morning that we can lock in and focus on you for these moments that we have together. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would do something supernatural in our hearts this morning, God. I pray that you would change us and transform us through the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, we thank you. We give you glory. We give you honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning from Isaiah 49 is The Saving Servant. The Saving Servant. During this time of year, most people, even those who would say that they're not Christians or not believers, can at least tell you the story of Jesus' birth. You would drive around in different neighborhoods and you would see the nativity scenes um, as people put up lights and they do all the things to celebrate this season. And they celebrate the child, the Messiah that has come into the world. But we as believers know that we, when we celebrate Advent, we're not just celebrating one that has come, we're celebrating one that's to come again. And so for us, this is a twofold celebration. And this passage that we study today looks to the one that would come for the first time in this particular context. This this passage comes at a time when Israel would have come out of Babylonian captivity. This this would have been a a passage of hope and anticipation to a generation of people that experienced the hardness of life 
But the problem is they get this message of hope and the prophet Isaiah is dead. And so how is it that someone who is no longer here, how can their words have relevance to a generation that is stuck in a struggle? Well, theologian Robert Chisholm has this to say and explains what chapters 40 through 66 are um, in the book of Isaiah. He says it like this. It may be compared to an aging grandfather who writes a letter to his baby granddaughter and seals it with the words to be opened on your wedding day. The grandfather knows that he may not live to see his granddaughter's wedding, but he understands the challenges he will face that she will face as a wife and a mother. And so what he does is projects himself into the future and speaks to his granddaughter as if he were actually present on her wedding day. One can imagine the profound rhetorical impact such a letter would have on the granddaughter as she recognizes the foresight and wisdom contained within it and realizes just how much her grandfather cared for her. When God's exiled people living more than 150 years after Isaiah's time heard this message to them, they should have realized all the while that God had foreseen their circumstances and that he had cared for, cared about them to encourage them with a message of renewed hope. So this is a message of hope for a generation of people who have had a hard time with life. And so if I had to give a thesis statement for Isaiah 49, this is it. It's, it's the autobiography of the saving servant that God called and prepared to represent and save his people and the nations. Isaiah chapter 49 is the autobiography of the saving servant that God called and prepared to represent and save his people and the nations. And one of the most beautiful things that I love about this passage, it, it, is, it is one of the greatest missions passages in all of scripture. And so here's a deeper look inside of our context. The context is this. This passage finds God's people in a very interesting and peculiar, peculiar place. They had just been liberated from Babylonian captivity. This was not their first time being exiled. Prior to this, uh, with Babylon, they had been exiled by the Assyrians. And this was not God's fault that they got in trouble. Much like us, they found themselves continually trapped in situations, being oppressed. And the reason why was because of their own disobedience and their own rebellion. Sometimes it is our fault. Sometimes it is. And as usual, just like with us, God shows them a measure of grace and gets them out of the trouble that they got themselves into. And so how does God do that? God raises up someone to bring them out. He doesn't raise up someone that's from among them. He uses a pagan king by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of Persia, and the Persians have defeated the Babylonians. And typically what happens in war in antiquity, the winner gets the spoils. So whatever, whoever conquers the other territory, you not only get to keep the goods, but you get to keep the people. And so here's what Cyrus does. Cyrus decides that I'll take the property, but I'll let the Jewish people go free. And I know what you're thinking, man, thank God for Cyrus. Cyrus is a nice guy. Thank God for Cyrus. Know what you and I should be saying is, thank God for working on Cyrus' heart to let his people go. And so it is a great thing that God has used Cyrus to bring the exiles back home. Cyrus, hear this, Cyrus helped to change their physical location. Cyrus helped to change their physical location. However, there is one problem that we'll find. Cyrus couldn't deal with what got them put into exile in the first place. And so they were no longer physically captive, but that didn't mean that they were not spiritually captive. 
You see, you can move from a place, but if your behavior stay the same, you'll find yourself in the same situation. And so Cyrus, although he can move them from one place to another, Cyrus can't affect change where they need it the most. You see, I pray that they will let me work in another department. I pray that I can get another, another job. You see, your boss can move you to another department, but if your heart has not changed and your behavior has not changed and you have not been transformed, you will take those old behaviors and habits into the new place. It'll seem like captivity from the old place. And so, so Cyrus moves their physical location, but Cyrus's act brought about a change in the physical, but it did not cause spiritual transformation. And so because of that, how will Israel be any different than they were before Cyrus let them go? You see, God had a mission for his people. They were supposed to represent God in the world. The problem was they kept failing time and time and time again. And so God decides one more time by his grace to release them, but God didn't release them so that they can be the same as they were before. And let me say this to you this morning. God never saves to keep things the same. God never saves to keep things the way they are. God wanted them released from bondage into freedom, not just for freedom's sake, but that they could experience God's freedom, freedom of the truth. This was not about a pilgrimage of the feet. This was more about a pilgrimage of the mind and the heart. God wants to change your heart. And so the main thing that God wants to do in our lives, more than make your dreams come true, more than promote you on your job, more than get you a raise, more than blow you up, more than make you rich, God wants to deliver you from sin. Ooh, he said sin in church. God wants to deal with our heart this morning. God wants to deal with our heart, but Cyrus can't do that. Cyrus can't affect change in your heart. The Cyruses that God sends into our lives, be it a parent, be it a spouse, be it a coworker, be it a boss, they alleviate us from temporal discomfort and frustration, but they are tools in the hand of the Lord to get our attention, not so that we can look and worship Cyrus, but that we can look to the God that moved on Cyrus's heart. This is about getting us to see that Cyrus ain't good, but God is good and God is sovereign and God can affect change and change men's heart. The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. And so God knows this, that if we get rescued by the Cyruses of our lives, we would have the proclivity to start worshiping Cyrus. And so what we find in this passage is that Cyrus delivers them, but Cyrus exits stage left, and this servant enters center stage. And this is where the prophet Isaiah introduces the, servant, the suffering servant to us. And so instead of God speaking through Isaiah about the servant, the servant is now speaking through Isaiah about Himself. That's why it's autobiographical, because the servant is talking about himself. The servant is what Cyrus could not be and what Israel should have been, but couldn't become on their own. Let me tell you again what the servant is. The servant is what Cyrus could not be and what Israel should have been, but they could not become on their own. And so the servant will recall to us his personal testimony about his call and his conversation that he had with God. And the people, as you can imagine, because of what they went went through, they are relieved to be out of captivity, but because of the hardness of what they went through, they are struggling to trust God. 
Oftentimes when we go through hard seasons of life, especially those seasons that are a season of extended hardness, it makes it hard for us to trust God because of what we've been through, even though in most cases we put ourselves there. And so they are like the puppy who's been, a, who's been beaten and bruised and abandoned and, you, and he gets a new owner, but he's afraid of everybody. And so he cowers in the corner. And that's how Israel is because they've been battered so long. They are afraid to trust anybody, including their God. And so Isaiah introduces someone that will bring about restoration because they've been separated from God. He wants to bring about, rest, talks about restoration in their future. This person that he introduced in chapter 42 will restore them back to God. And so Isaiah is giving them a message of hope regarding the one that will set everything right. Isaiah is a prophet, but let me give you some clarity on prophecy. I know what you saw on YouTube. I know what you see on social media. The guy that can call out people's phone numbers. The guy that can call out social security numbers. That's great and all, but if your heart Heart ain't changed, you sat there for nothing. Don't mean to offend you. But prophetic messages were never intended for the people only to wait on the future, although that's a part of it. Prophets were more concerned about the present than they were the future. They gave a vision of the future with the intent that the people would respond today. What do you mean, Pastor? When we preach about Christ, the one that is to come back, we're not just sitting by twiddling our thumbs, waiting on Jesus with no change. No, we are waiting on Jesus, but we respond today like he's coming tomorrow. And so that is what he's, what he's calling them to. And so the servant takes center stage, and the servant steps up, and he says, allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is... And the servant, right at the outset, gives us an inclination from the start of what he came to do. He says, coasts and islands, li listen to me. D distant people, pay attention to me. He's talking about everybody. He's calling the world to pay attention to what he's about to say. He's calling the world to pay attention to what he's about to say. And here's what he says in verse 1. He says, the Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. My first point for all of you note takers is this. The servant is called and we are called also. The servant is called and we are called also. And so he brings the servant on the scene, but God is not bringing, going to bring the servant on the scene responding to how they've messed up and how Israel can't get it together. God wasn't, was not caught off guard. God wasn't using his emergency backup plan before the beginning of time. Sovereign God in all his sovereignty knew that he would send the servant into the world. So God is not caught off guard. Let me tell you something. God doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't need one. God has always, always working on plan A. You might have a plan B. God don't have one. And so from eternity past, the father knew that he was going to do this. This was all a part of what he had planned to do to save the world. And so when he says, before I was born, he knew me. Before I got here, he called me. That shouldn't catch us by surprise if we're familiar with the scripture. Because if we remember Exodus chapter 19, he said the same thing about Israel. You are my chosen, my treasured possession. You are my people. You belong to me. I already staked my claim on you. I knew it before you got here that you would belong to me. So you work for me. You are mine for my glory. He said that about them. And then the prophet Jeremiah says the same thing Isaiah says. Jeremiah says, before I was born, in my, before I was in my mother's womb, he knew who 
powers, he already knows. And then Paul, when he shows up in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, he set me apart before I was born. You mean to tell me Paul the murderer is saying God set him apart so God wasn't surprised about his mess up when he was trying to uh, 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 kill Christians? No, God was not caught off guard. God is never caught off guard. You are. And so God was God already was where you was, and God already is where you're going to be. If you're an English major, just never mind what I just said. Don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. But I say it for all the country folks that can feel what a brother is saying this morning. God already was where you was, and he already is where you're going to be. Nothing catches God by surprise. No one's life is purposeless. You may still be trying to figure out your life, but God is not. God is not confused like we are. God is not trying to figure out what your next career move will be. God is not trying to figure out what happens after you graduate. God is not stumped over why things are not moving as fast or why they ain't moving the way that you had hoped they are. God is not ad-libbing and freestyling his way through your life. God is not casually participating in your life in hopes that he doesn't drop you. He knows your end from your beginning and that should make you wonder at the sovereignty of God, but more than that, it should make your heart trust him. And so the Lord has a specific plan and purpose for the servant, and he has one for you. And so there is no reason for you or I to fret about what's next. If you look at this text today, we'll see that the servant says that he was called, he was named, but it doesn't say he threw him right into action. And here's the rub. Verse number two, he made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharp arrow. He hid me in his quiver. Point number two is the servant was prepared. We must be prepared. The servant was prepared. We must be prepared. And so he tells us what his ministry is about at the outset. He made my words like a sharp sword. He, he will, he's saying he'll accomplish God's mission, not by military force, but by revelation of God's word. He's saying, I, I'm going to have a, a word ministry that, that, will, that will cause victory. And so if we remember the Bible, and you remember Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, this language shouldn't be unfamiliar with us because the writer of Hebrews says the word of God is living and effective and what? Sharper than any double-edged what? Sword. And so this is the ministry of this servant. He will be an effective spokesperson for God. He wasn't coming to slaughter his enemies like some political figure or earthly king. He was going to pierce men's heart, their hardened hearts, with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His words will be effective in accomplishing his mission. It's amazing that he says, he made my words sharp like a sword, and he made me like a sharpened arrow. You know, when you, if you have a sword, typically a sword is used to fight people up close and personal. But if you use an arrow, you're not typically using an arrow to shoot somebody standing next to you. Y'all don't, don't got it yet. You only use a sword for those up close. You use an arrow from those that are far away. He's given us insight into the ministry of the servant. It won't be a ministry up close and personal with people that are just like him. It'll also be a ministry for people that are far away from him. And so his ministry isn't called to call those just next to him. It's that, but it's also those that are beyond him that are not like him. 
So he has a twofold ministry, one with the sword and one with the arrow. May I suggest to you that many of us have been using sword ministry, but we have yet to pull out our arrow. And, and so he says in the midst of all of this, but he hid me. He hid me. He hid me in his hand. He hid me in his quiver. Why would he use all this hiding language? Because a call to perform is first a call to prepare. A call to perform is first a call to prepare. It is not wise to have the platform before the preparation. I just want a job with $100,000. You not budgeting the $25,000 well right now. You just going to waste God's resources? You're not generous now. Oh, when I get half a million dollars, I'm going to be super generous. No, you're going to be broke. Maybe you should prepare a budget now with zero dollars. So that... I want a husband. You can't cook. That ain't in Texas. That's me. That ain't in Texas. Me. That's my my bad. I don't know where I got that from. I don't know where I got that from. Golly, what happened? You, you know, it says he polished him. He pol- he sharpened his word. And he polished him like an arrow. He was smoothing out the edges for his ministry. He's smoothing out the edges so that when he used his weapon, he wouldn't be a- abrasive. And he wouldn't condemn people as opposed to doing what he was supposed to do, which was compelling people. God's hand was on the sword so that he could draw it at the appropriate time. Opportune time is significant. God hid him so that he could prepare him, care for him, have intimacy with him. And maybe that is what God is doing with you. You think, oh, I'm ready for this, I'm ready for that, and that's fine. I'm not saying that you're not, but can you appreciate being prepared when nobody else can see you? Can you be faithful behind the scenes? Can you clean the toilets? Would you clean the toilet? Would you pick up a piece of paper off the floor or are you too brand new and bougie to pick it up off the floor but you want somebody to have you want to have a company with employees and if your employees don't pick up the paper off the floor you're gonna want to fire them but now you walk by paper every day at your job and you don't pick on you don't pick up nothing you don't want to clean up anything you leave stuff everywhere I want to mention your bed ain't made in the one bedroom apartment people I want a new job. You late at the one you got every day. Preparedness, preparation. God would rather we be prepared and effective than eager and useless. Eagerness does not equate to readiness. Just because you are eager don't mean that you are ready. Let God hone those desires. Let God sand off the rough parts of your life and work on your attitude, work on your responsiveness, work on your patience, work on your long-suffering, work on your love, work on your mercy, work on your compassion. Let God develop some fruit of the Spirit in your life. 
There is a training ground that happens before a person is used for ministry and service to God. If there was a time of preparation and waiting for the servant that would bring salvation, what makes you exempt? And when we realize that our call and mission in life is given with the purpose of serving the one who sent us, we wouldn't get so frustrated with the waiting. There is a blessing in not knowing. There is a blessing in uncertainty. There is a blessing in being in a season and a place where you don't control the timing of a thing. What is the blessing, Pastor? Because that doesn't feel good. The blessing is that God has given us that time to prepare. Preparedness is not punishment. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. This is the place where you learn, you grow, you develop character, you pray, you build confidence in God. But even with all your preparation, it's kind of like being a spouse or being a parent. You can prepare all you want for some stuff, but you ain't gonna never have it all together. You'll be figuring out some stuff until the day you die, and you'll be making mistakes over and over again, like we all do. And that was the problem with Israel. God gave them a mission, but they failed time and time again to trust God. They were supposed to be God's representatives, but this is where he introduces the servant. They couldn't get it together. And so my other point is this. The servant had a specific mission. We have a specific mission. Your mission is not about you. Your mission is about God. Man, some of y'all got to just delete your social media. You've been listening to too many motivational speakers. You're trying to boss up. How about you boss down? The way to the cross is down, not up. And so Israel keeps messing up. They, they, they essentially become a failure. And so verse 3, here's what he says. Here's what God got. He was like, the servant was talking about himself. God called me. God prepared me. God hid me. And then he says this. God started talking back to him. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel. You are my servant, Israel. Now, the servant's name ain't necessarily Israel, but God says, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And so he gives the servant the name Israel because actual Israel is not capable of living up to their own name. And so when he tells the servant, you are Israel, he's not saying you're Israel in identity. He's saying you're Israel in function. You will embody what Israel was supposed to be. Oh, that's so good. He is the perfect fulfillment of all that Israel was supposed to be. The servant will, the Israel will actually fail time and time again, but the servant will be the one to succeed. Israel was supposed to represent God to the nations. They were supposed to be his people that were the means of introducing them to God so that the nations would turn from idols and trust in God for salvation. They were to mediate God's blessing to the world. Remember Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, what God said to Abraham? This is what Israel's supposed to do. They were supposed to demonstrate to a watching world what a just society looks like. They were to mirror the character and deeds of God to the nations but they failed because that's what sin does sin puts us in a place where we are unable and incapable of doing everything sin is the problem sin is it's not enough it's not about you not having enough money it's sin it's not about you having commitment issues it's sin it's not that you need to keep switching your major. It's something in your heart that is preventing you from being who God wants you to be. 
That is all of our plight. I don't care what society tells you, how beautiful you are, how great you are, how wonderful you are, how smart you are, how wise you are, how you should be an entrepreneur, how you should do all of these wonderful things. You are a sinner. I can't believe it feels offensive to say that in church. (laughs) But you need to sit with the weight of that. You can't get your stuff together. I can't get my stuff together. We will fail no matter how many times we try to succeed. We can't do it. Even on your best day, it ain't good enough. You need to sit with that reality. They were supposed to lead people. They were supposed to lead other nations. How could a nation that couldn't find its own way to God show anyone else the way? This is the tense that sets over the text, and this is the dilemma that the servant came to solve. What are you to do when God has called you to do something, but, but you've messed up so much, and you've taken it so far, and you've breached the terms of the contract, and the only response that God can give you is to terminate you? Here's what you do. You trust in the only one that can save you. You trust in the only one that can save you. Instead of wiping Israel off the face of the planet, which is what he should have done, he should have got rid of all of them, which is what they deserve. But instead of doing that, he devises something that he had already planned from the beginning, how their servanthood could be worked out and how they could be reconciled back to God. Someone not only had to be what Israel could not be, they also had to be the one to restore Israel back to God. The problem is Israel can't restore Israel. But it takes somebody who's not just human. They got to be a mediator between both parties. They got to be fully human and they got to be fully divine. Now, I don't know who you got in your phone or who you can call up. I don't know who you got. But if you got somebody in there that's fully human and fully divine, you have found the Messiah. (laughs) But there is only one that is fully human and fully divine. There is only one that can get the people out of their mess. And I think Isaiah already gave a clue of who this person actually is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when he said this lady named Mary, the virgin, will have a son and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. But then before the baby shows up on the scene in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. If you didn't catch it early on and if it's not obvious to you now, the servant is Jesus. Just thought I'd hold that back for a little melodramatic (laughs) undergirding to my sermon. And this is why the incarnation is so important. We needed him to come. We needed him to be both. This is why we celebrate the birth of Jesus coming into the world. We needed somebody that would be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, yet without sin. We needed that. We needed somebody that could be on both sides of the aisle. And so this servant will not only come to do what they should have been doing, the servant comes to give his life as an atonement for their sin. He will die in their place so that they can be restored back to God. But let me tell you this, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. This was a hard task. Just like our mission to live out the gospel is a hard task. Here's what it says in verse 4. He's responding to God. God is like, you are my servant who I'll be glorified. You're Israel. And here's what he says. I think he was getting a little slick with God. 
He said, but, but, my, but I myself said, I have labored in vain and I've spent my strength for nothing and futility. Yet my vindication is with the Lord and my reward is with God. The servant himself feels like he will struggle at times with feelings of failure. The servant himself will experience seasons of despondency, but this is good because it was all of the plan, part of the plan for the burden that he came to bear. Here's why it's important. To become powerless is to experience what the powerless experience. So he had to come. He had to come. But when he came, it was not easy. It looked like all was lost. It looked at times like there was no hope. It happens to us, even those in ministries, missionaries go to places or go to lands that have been unreached with no fruit to show for it. They stay there for years. Pastors can preach week after week to the same people and still not see them grow in their lives. Parents give all they got to raise their hard-headed children right, only to see those same children that they raised right in church rebel and make a mess of their lives. You can love a spouse all you can, but it still will look like at times that it is all worth nothing. You ever did the best you could and it still wasn't enough? And the servant says, I can relate to this. It talks about Jesus who was despised and rejected by men. By men at times, he felt frustrated. Matthew 17 and 17, he got so tired. At one point, people came to him about disciples. Disciples like, yo, we can't, get, we can't get it done. We can't get it done out here. We're trying to cast out these demons. It ain't working for us. And Jesus isn't kind and nice. Jesus was like, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be? How long I got to put up with this mess? Even Jesus is frustrated with the disciples. He's frustrated. He feels like it's not worth it. How long must I put up with you? How long I got to deal with your stuff? And here's the thing. You not even perfect, and you frustrated. Jesus lived a perfect life, preached perfect sermons, did miracles, signs, wonders, raised the dead, healed the sick, cast out demons, yet the people despised him, rejected him, condemned him to death. Even his best friend denied knowing him, but as he was dying on the cross, he entrusted himself to God and said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it still looked bleak for two days. Two days, it looked like everything was messed up. It looked like all the disciples that followed Jesus had wasted their time for three years. It looked like all of it was worthless and purposeless, but something happened on that third day. Something changed. God decided to get his son up out that grave, and on the third day, he raised him to life. You better shout for this, because this is why you and I are forgiven. This is why you and I have eternal life, because God did something about it, and when there was no hope, hope arrived. He was vindicated by God. But he didn't see it. And maybe you need to stop looking for people to vindicate you. You need to stop waiting for people to pat you on your back for the good deeds that you keep doing. But maybe your work will be vindicated by God, and that takes time and that takes waiting. Maybe God is the one that will say, job well done. Maybe your boss will never appreciate you. Maybe your friends and family will never appreciate the efforts you give them. Maybe you'll never get a pat on your back from your boss. Maybe you'll never get a promotion, but you remain faithful in the midst of adversity. Even when it looks hopeless, you remain hopeful because you have a hope in one that is to come. Faith ain't just believing, it's trusting. 
Trust doesn't have to do with the middle part. Trust has to do with the outcome. Oh, I believe in God. Anybody, you go outside, you better believe in God. That's obvious. But what separates real believers is that faith is not just believism. Faith is actually trust. It's trust. And so, even Jesus, on his way to the cross, is one, one of my favorite scriptures in Luke 9, which says, he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. He was determined to do what his father called him to do, no matter what it looked like. He set his face like a flint, like I'm not flinching, I'm not turning, I'm not deviating, I'm sticking with the script. He followed through with what God called him to do. At any moment, Jesus could have been like, I'm out of here, Jack. But he didn't. His will was to do the will of his father. And should I, should I suggest to you that your will is to do the will of your father? And so verse 5 says, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. I'm explaining this because y'all confused. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. Those names are interchangeable. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. Well, the, the ministry or the mission of the servant was twofold. One was to restore God's people back to him. But it was more than that. And so the servant, at this point, is celebrating, although he said it was just hard, he's celebrating. He says, I'm honored in the sight of the Lord. He's celebrating the grace of God that has given him strength in the first place. And so I think sometimes for us, we can sit in these stages and places of despondency because we don't appreciate God for the grace that he's shown us already. And so maybe the antidote to despondency, the antidote to depression is appreciation for the grace of God. You ever woke up one morning and just say, God, I thank you. I don't have no money. Things are not going well. It is taking too long. Everybody making me mad. I hate everybody today. But God, thank you for the grace. Thank you that I'm alive. Thank you that it's going to get better. Thank you that you're coming back again. Lord, if the only hope I had was in this world, I might lose my mind. But Lord, I know that there's something else greater, something else coming. I know you're coming back to make everything right. You're coming back to make all the cricket places straight. You're coming back to heal everything that is sick. You will make everything right. Lord, I thank you for the grace that although my life is not the way I want it, I thank you that I have you in my life because if I have you, I have everything everything. So he appreciates God for the grace. It is sheer grace that God uses us in any capacity. So my last point, and I'm almost out your way. Verse six says this. It's amazing. He's celebrating because God used him to restore his own people. He's like, yes, God used me to restore Israel. He gave me his strength to restore Israel. It was hard, but God gave it to me. And then God is talking and here's some words that I probably would get scared. Verse 6, and he's speaking for God. He said, he, and he says, it's not enough. You ever do something for somebody and do your best? And maybe they don't say it's not enough, but they communicate it with their body language. That's nice. You be like, Lord have mercy. I've been here all day long. I was shopping for this all day long. And I brought it for you. You're still like, oh, that's, that's cool. And he think he done done the thing. I took out the trash, I washed the dishes, I made up the bed, and she come in and it's crumbs in the sofa. <laughs> and she says, it's not enough. And God says to him, it's not enough 
for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. It's not enough that you can go evangelize to your own people. It's not enough that you can go and witness to people that look just like you. It's not enough for you to witness just the people that grew up on your same block. It's not enough for you to just witness to the people that you talk to on the phone. Evangelism ain't talking and debating with your friends about other theological matters with other saved people. He says it's not enough for you to restore the tribes of Israel. I know you did that. Thank you. I appreciate it. But I got one more thing for you. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the full mission of God was not just to restore Israel, but to bring light into the world. He's supposed to be light to the nations, to deliver them from sin and bondage. He was supposed to be a light to all of the Gentile nations. It's interesting, when Jesus' parents brought him to get circumcised, this dude named Simeon, who was supposed to do the circumcision, in Luke chapter 2, says this, when he's holding up baby Jesus. Now I need you to imagine. Jesus has a baby. And you think Jesus is just his perfect little baby. He is perfect, because he doesn't have no sin. But he's, a, he's, he's still a baby. He still do, do what babies do. If he was in service, he'd probably be crying. I was saying amen because he's Jesus. <laughs> he'd be confirming things. But this man named Simeon holds up Jesus. He holds up this servant that Isaiah's prophesied about. He holds him up, and here's what Simeon says. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. The ministry of the servant was never to be to his own people. It was always to extend to the world. Your ministry is not just for people who look like you. I can't say that enough. The love of God should so compel your heart that you want to talk to people who don't look like you. The problem is, is I think subconsciously you think that you're Jewish and Jesus saved you. But you don't realize you're Gentile. What would happen if Jesus took your current mindset and he was indifferent to the Gentiles? Where would you and I be? But, but Jesus knew his ministry wasn't just to his own kind. It was to everybody. It was to everybody. And so our ministry must be like the ministry of the servant. It must be like the servant. Anybody can go to the one he's familiar with. You don't need the grace of God to talk to your own clique. You don't need the grace for that. You don't need the power of God to debate theological matters with your friend. But when God gives you an assignment or a task that he wants done, it is never so small that you can get it done without him. The reason why it feels uncomfortable for you to evangelize and witness to people that don't look like you is because you need the power of God to do it. And we have a generation of people that talk theological matters, but they don't use the spirit of God. And he's saying, use the spirit of God and go out and be who I called you to be. The vision or mission of every church is only a derivative of the one mission of the church, which is the Great Commission. And he told them to go, to go. But why are we still sitting here? So we have to change our mindset from taking church to be some social club where we meet up with friends. It is that, but that doesn't accomplish all it is. You're coming here to be equipped to do the work of ministry. And even at your job, you think it's not ministry because you're not up here. Because you didn't lead a song. 
because you didn't play on some keys and interrupt the pastor's sermon. But do you know your pulpit is bigger than mine? And every day, your ministry is a ministry of reconciliation to the world at your job, in the classroom, with your family members. You are supposed to represent Christ to the world. You are supposed to be a priest that mediates the new covenant to let people know that one has come to reconcile you back to God the Father, that you cannot be saved on your own merit, that we need God's grace, we need his mercy, we need the atonement, we need to be saved by God. We cannot save ourselves, and God has called you and I to do the work of ministry. It's not just sitting in church on Sunday morning, even though it is that. And this is what the servant song is all about. He's called us to be a people who will live on mission and not be indifferent to other people. When was the last time you shared the good news about God? When was the last time you shared the good news about Jesus with a stranger? The unfortunate thing is if I know if I pose another question and I ask you, who did your hair? You would have a more recent response. If I asked you, when was the last time you told somebody where you got XYZ product? You would have a recollection, a recollection of that. But if I asked you, when's the last time you shared the good news of Jesus with the stranger? I'm afraid that our answer won't be recent. And that's not to condemn you. That is to say that you have a responsibility that the reason that you're saved is because somebody shared the good news with you. The ministry of Christ is not a take your ball and go home ministry. It's a Magic Johnson ministry. It's a no look pass. It's behind the back. You setting up other people with the assists. You passing the rock. Many of us have a LeBron ministry. And so, <laughs> we just keep the ball and travel at the top of the key. But the good news is life-saving. And if we love people, which we're called to do, then we'll share this good news that we have. That we won't sit on the sidelines and wait for the professional ministers to do the work of ministry. But we'll all jump in the game. And we'll say, I don't know you. I'd like to take you to lunch. I'd like to get coffee with you. I don't know you. I just want to hear your story. I just want to learn more about you. When the, when the opportunity comes, you say, hey, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I want to tell you about somebody, somebody that saved my life. His name is Jesus. I'm not better than you. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm just saved, saved by grace. I, I, I made a decision. When, when my eyes were open, I made a decision to turn away from my former life and put my trust in Christ. 
I don't know about you, but I, I believe that eternity is real. But I, but I know that, that God sent his son to die for my sins on a cross. And so I'm not forcing you to do anything, but I just do want to share the good news with you. That we're all sinners. and None of us can get it right no matter how hard we try. But in God's grace, he sent his son. That, that, that's the good news I want to share with you. I don't want to beat you up with the Bible. I'm not even trying to force you to come to my church. I just want to share the good news of Jesus with you. Now, if you can write 3,700-word thesis in a text message thread, you take all the energy and leave that bubble there, knowing if you want to respond harshly to this person or not, using all of your energy, when you have somebody who is literally a dead man walking with you every day at your cubicle, or sitting next to you in your classroom, and you refuse to share the good news with him, and you say you're a Christian. That ain't Christianity. But we all have this beautiful, wonderful message of the cross what Christ did for us so we should share it let us pray Father we thank you for we hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life you can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story request prayer give financial support or learn more about our ministry we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area thanks again for joining us today have a wonderful week